The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. I think we'll have we have an interesting conversation ahead of us. Yeah. Well, I wanted to take a, a few minutes to reflect on some things that I think were missed in the last conversation. You know, we focused a lot on change management, but there is an aspect to that. Um, you know, a conversation to be had about capitalism in general that I at least wanted to touch on as a precursor to future conversations we're going to have and to kind of set the stage for that. I uh, just, you know, I wasn't completely satisfied with where we left it last time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me about what you, what your thoughts are. So last episode, you know, we talked about Foucault and the fable of the Hawthorne studies. And that branched off in a discussion about the extent to which companies can do good things for their employees and other stakeholders without contradicting their capitalistic duty to shareholders and owners. Um, so I'm not completely satisfied where we left it there. I wanted to give a quick addendum. So last time I suggested that one of the goals of change management, which is this relatively new discipline focusing on helping organizations effectively implement changes, is to make employees and other stakeholders feel that their needs are being met. And we assume that when stakeholders feel that their needs are being met, we see a more seamless implementation, as well as increases in productivity and perceived value and ultimately profit. So uh, there's a McKinsey study that shows that organizations with poor change management will receive a return on investment on implemented changes as low as 35%. But when there's a robust uh, change management effort, the ROI can be as, hard, as high as 143%. So I think this relates to Porter and Kramer's claim in creating shared value, which we briefly touched on last week, um, which is more of a, a general claim about capitalism, that doing good and advancing the bottom line can work together in harmony, and that companies have an opportunity to rethink value creation in shared value terms. So I know this can be kind of a contentious uh, issue, but it's, it's really interesting to me. And I came across a potentially interesting example of this with a company called Patagonia, which if you don't know, it's an American clothing company that markets and sells outdoor clothing. And apparently they have this uh, puffy vest with an embroidered corporate logo. And that's kind of the industry standard for corporate wear. So you have a lot of companies who have a contract with Patagonia and they get their corporate emblem placed on this vest. So you see all these kind of big cigar chomping uh, CEOs and executives wearing this Patagonia vest. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, Patagonia recently announced, though, and I'm going to paraphrase this in the interest of time, but that companies that don't invest in in, in the environment, basically, uh, they're not going to enjoy priority access to this vest anymore. So mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was kind of interesting from, you know, how can a company that, you know, wants to advance the bottom line uh is it really in the interest of them to do this is this a shared value kind of thing or is this just a kind of a 
um, something that uh, a corporate responsibility type thing that they're doing. But I, I think it's both a smart business decision and it's also an example of something that is probably good from a wider um, environmental standpoint. And it could be a good example of creating shared value. You know, they already, it's worth noting that they already sell uh, to a high-end market and it's generally outside of this corporate uh, branch. Their consumers are more environmentally conscious because that's part of the brand. Um, yeah. So it's in the it's in their financial interest to be doing these kinds of things, to be publicly supporting environmental causes. But I think this bit of marketing with the best, it, it's also smart business. Uh, it advances the loyalty of existing customers and invites other environmentally conscious consumers into the mix. And it also has this effect of signaling to industry that it's not good business to be a big company and also not invest in positive environmental change. So I, I think this is a recent example of a company with some kind of shared value chain. And, you know, looking forward, as we talk more about technology and automation, and that's going to change the context surrounding capitalism a lot. And I think we're planning to spend some time on key thinkers like Marx and Habermas down the line. And, you know, I want to revisit and further explore this concept of doing business with humanity in mind. Yeah. You know, you, I think you bring up some interesting elements in the way that businesses are adapting to a to our present time with its, I think, increasing awareness of some of the horizons, some of the the challenges we have in the horizon with climate change. Uh, the the question I think the skeptics question and something that we have to discuss and going forward is I think given the logics of of capitalism sort of the way that it functions the way that it's been structured in laws the way that it uh, has been that, that the way that it also functions in terms of the way that uh, basically it's it's inherent logics uh, based on its forms of property, its forms of its reliance on profit. To what extent does you know does our companies able to adapt uh, to a value-oriented model at the expense of let's say profit, at the benefit of let's say let's say um, climate change? How much is this forced upon by consumers' changing habits? How much of this is uh, imposed upon by, a, a, let's say, a, an attempt to to uh, look like you are, you are somehow changing your habits. But to what extent is that happening? Or are you just doing that in a superficial sense, or does that does that link all the way to how you get your, how you how you produce your products, where you get your resources, your materials, how you pay your labor, and finally, I think also at what point. Uh, is this imposed at a political level, right? In terms of a set of normative frameworks about what capital can do and where can it go. So I think that's it's an on, yeah. it's an interesting conversation and one that that's ongoing and and one that it would be uh, premature for us to e come down on either way necessarily at this point. But uh, yeah, I think that's something left over from from our last conversation, and that also brings up the you know gets us to our to today's conversation and this question of uh, perhaps modernity, right? We, we, we talked last time about how Foucault, for Foucault, modernity in a sense is just uh, nothing more than a more powerful 
more diffuse, more complete form of power, of surveillance, of control. Um, and we'd have to, you know, as part of this, as part of maybe trying to think against this for a certain extent, but at the same time, uh, take Foucault seriously, we'd have to wonder um, what are the logics of, to what extent can, uh, between the field of, of, of business and the field of, of government and institutions and then civil society, uh, can there be openings for something beyond, let's say, purely profit motive, purely uh, power, and and something else, right? So it's some ongoing conversation. But we we think we you know we started with with a very negative thinker in terms of what the possibilities for that are, and today we move on to to Nietzsche, who's another sort of pessimist and a very much an anti-modernist, in the sense that his, a lot of his philosophy is is focused on a very much on a critique of of modernity. Tell me what he's the pessimist. I think you know this this um. This idea of doing humanity with business in mind, which is actually the Johns Hopkins Carey School motto, and very it, it's, <laughs> it's very it's yeah. very much an Enlightenment idea that Nietzsche uh, would absolutely despise. Of course, I think, yeah, he would so, tear it up. That would be yeah, yeah. He was, he would write a book on it probably. <laughs> I'd love to read that book. <laughs> well, Juan, how do you exercise power? to achieve your goals as a Stanford PhD candidate, as a professor, or as a human being? Are you a Nietzschean master? I am not a Nietzschean by, at least in terms of the way I try to behave <laughs> in day-to-day -day <laughs> life, I think. But Nietzsche would probably disagree. As as we saw in uh, in Beyond Good and Evil, uh, there are a couple of main concepts for Nietzsche that are really important, right? Um, and then maybe I'll ask you about what you thought about these concepts. You know, well, the reason I think that Nietzsche would disagree with me is because he thinks that there's this underlying will to power to sort of life that in some ways pervades all of our actions as, as sort of you know, creatures and there's no, you know, there's no getting around it that even when we're sort of pretending to be objective, sort of truth tellers or analysts, at the end of the day, we're really being led by this sort of will to power, which is sort of this almost organic um, underlying element of all that underlies all of nature and that regiments all of our actions and interactions. And so that being the case, uh, you know, what did you think about these this concept first let's start with the concept of will to power and then i think uh, we should try to explain how you know why nietzsche thinks that this is such a important uh all all encompassing uh concept yeah. what did you think about R some of this this idea that nietzsche has about will to power in beyond good and evil i actually really struggled for a while trying to understand what what nietzsche really meant by will to power but I, the, the two key takeaways that, that kind of contextualize it for me were his historical analysis and then also kind of his prescription for what we should do yeah. about um, the power dynamics in, in the world that we live in. So um, you know, on, the, on the historical side, you know, on, on page 10, Nietzsche states that to make nature in your own image is a kind of narcissism. And, you know, Nietzsche was a sick, he was sick and angry. And in my reading, he didn't really enjoy people, especially the philosophers 
who ostracized him. And uh, in the book, he yeah. observes that most people are deluded about their core interests, and they're basically narcissistic and are undeservedly self-congratulating. I think that's pretty ironic. <laughs> but I also think it's the crux of Nietzsche's mm. interpretation of the yeah. history of Western thought. If we track the course of Western thought, starting uh, uh, with democracy and science in uh, or with the ancient Greeks, and you move into the Renaissance period, constituted by increased skepticism, iconoclasm against the church, scientific inquiry, and then into the Enlightenment period with theories of personal rights and limitations on the powers of government, they begin to emerge. And for Nietzsche, this modernizing trend that to this day is attempting to maximize justice for the masses, it's simply diluted. Well, ultimately, yeah. justice is meaningless. It's an arbitrary construct. There's no good. There's no evil. There's only power and the discursive effects of power. Yeah. And while I'm pretty sure that Nietzsche's interpretation of Western thought can be related to his personal victim narrative. And maybe that's that's my feeling. Really, I mean, he, yeah. he comes off as, as pretty, uh, pretty uh, um, upset about uh, people not accepting his work. But but I also think he was basically right about putting uh, too much stock in arbitrary concepts of good and evil. So I, I think there are better hmm. and worse ways of doing things and being uh, being in the world. That's probably for another episode. Yeah. Well, you bring up some really interesting things about Nietzsche. On the one hand, there's the there's a there's a there's a sense in which he's he's a really a radical critic of the enlight of the enlightenment of modernity, and its notions of self, right? Which are which are this these ideas that have come from you know, maybe Descartes on uh, that have been systematized by Kant into a whole philosophy, but that uh, rely on this division between sub subject and object, but uh, but in a sense posit a sort of rational subject that can understand the laws of the objective world, and in a sense from that derive a set of ways of acting in the world that are rational and, and, that, and also derive sort of a moral code. For Nietzsche, um, this is all, to put it in in sort of philosophical terms, BS, right? Like there's, for him, there's no, there is no, uh, this whole idea of good between, of trying, of, of somehow as individuals deriving from the world, the object world, sort of a notion, a set of notions of either rationality or good and evil, uh, this is all misguided, and so he he kind of argues for a sort of perspectivism, in which the only you know we're, all we have are our impressions, our sort of sense impressions. Um, all we have are our own little perspectives in which we're sort of trapped. Uh, there's no, there is no basic you know he's got an epistemology right, which is we can't really know anything, and and therefore in a sense he also has a kind of ontology about the world which is. Uh, that the only thing that we can really know is that underlying all of natural life is this thing, this almost this this sort of pervasive will to power. Um, so the mechanistic world of of sort of plane, we be, we we're on the same plane of sort of imminence as the mechanistic natural world, and there's no there's no way getting out of that um, problem. It's, it's interesting how he's so against these absolutes. These absolute terms, but uh, you know, power becomes kind of the abs the the overarching theory of everything. Yeah, which you know, that's that's a little hard for me to reconcile. Well, you know, in a sense, I think you can you can see you see a, a really 
attention in Nietzsche on the one hand, sort of giving up all these enlightenment categories and critiquing them really harshly. Um, and therefore also, but, you know, opening up the way for a lot of fruitful critiques about the way humans and human societies have divided between good and bad, good and evil, and the problematic elements that come with that. But also then going to the point of, a you know, total rejection of any notion of truth. Um, and, and part of doing that, I think, is positing this sort of uh, underlying will to power that undermines any attempt at um, constructing, let's say, some kind of collaborative or intersubjective notion of truth, however tenuous it may be. So there's 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 a tension there. There's a tension between the there's a tension between the the I think critique of modernity and a sort of perhaps you could even call it some sort of uh, strange form of romanticism. Uh, this sort mm -hmm. of, I don't know, this, 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 we'll see it in him, but these motifs of uh, power, the Superman and things like that. Uh, but what, let's talk about some of these other, some of these other concepts that are really important in this book, right? Uh, there's a question of value. What do we give value to? And he rejects this whole dichotomy of good and evil. So we'll talk about what he can possibly sort of highlight as val as what's valuable. And then the the this distinction between master and slave morality, which is so central to his what you were bringing up is historical yeah. recounting, right? Well, so what were your impressions about those those specific concepts? Maybe maybe whichever one of those was you thought was particularly interesting. Yeah, Nietzsche's prescription. Uh, his solution to the problem is most interesting because it's it's really not a solution for most people, and that's that's part of that's by by design. So, um, you know, this it's it's reflected in this master and slave dichotomy that you brought up. So, what does it really mean to be a Nietzschean master? And that's interesting to me because then we can look at people in the real world today and and see is there such a thing as a Nietzschean master? And I think we'll find that uh, there might be. When we get to that point, uh, but here's my interpretation of the text. You know, at one level, it's about maintaining your authenticity in a world of mass conformity, and that that I, I think requires courage and self-reflection, and probably some irony too, and of course, this strong uh, will to be free. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then, I, but I also think there's a second level to the Nietzschean master, and that's that this person should also be a skilled aristocrat setting the rules that other people follow and this requires an appreciation for the reality that truth has never been attainable through reason instead of reason it's just a cover for our narcissism and truth is a reflection of power thus a Nietzschean master exercises power to create truth so um, I suppose that people who buy into truths created by masters like Socrates Jesus and, and Donald Trump they're by definition slaves and I have to say, this doesn't seem like much of a solution for the slaves, given that it takes a special rare kind of person to be a master. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think you bring me back to this <clears throat> tension with, with Nietzsche, right? Because on the one hand, there's, there's a critique of modernity, which in a sense posits the individual as being able to sort of 
figure ground uh, a, a sense of reason and sort of figure out a set of objective laws to the natural universe and 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 at the same time sort of derive a moral code and come up with a set of universals for thinking about um, the good, but uh, or at least how to act morally in the world. And yet with Nietzsche, we have a sort of rejection of this model of the individual that could do that because there's no truth. There's no nothing but uh, creating, as you said, creating truth in a sense, positing one's truth. Everything else right. is, uh, every attempt to create a universal is nothing, according to him, is nothing more than uh, a sort of disguised will to power of those who aren't strong enough to create truth and therefore have to sort of create these universals through which a, ma- a slave morality, which is what he calls, a, this is what he calls a slave morality, right? Through which one could then control the instinctual drives of the powerful sort of vitality of those who act, can actually posit and create their own truth. So, and yet he relies on this idea of these sort of uh, aggrandized, larger-than-life subjects who then would be able to, in a sense, create their own truth. So I think there's a there's an interesting, I think there's a tension there. But but this gets us to this question of master morality and the way it's very anti-modern, right? He's or anti-modern in the maybe in the Habermasian sense of modern, in the sense of um, if you think of modernity as a sort of as a sort of working to create our own normative standards in the in the present, uh, that would be based on autonomy and things like that. Whereas uh, Nietzsche uh, Nietzsche sort of positing that it, you know, sort of natural from a naturalist framework, the aristocrat of the or the old sort of feudal uh, warlords were sort of the ideal of vitality. They would come in and take over some areas and they would posit, you know, they would subjugate the populations and they would say what's good and what's not good. And what's good was always what was instinctual, what was, uh, in a sense, uh, spontaneous, vital, in a in a sort of sense of, like, full of life, right? And yeah. and this is, this is why he hates <laughs> modernity so much, because instead of letting loose it, it for him it sort of cages all these instincts and it and it reduces them it sort of puts them domestic domesticates them and it through these sort of universals and these ideas of good and, and evil uh really interesting you know a sort of really interesting framework this is why for him what's valuable at the end of the day is what's what's beautiful in an aesthetic sense maybe and also what's powerful what what's vital in a in a life sense but there's so there are a lot of to say the least, there are a lot of problems with with what he's saying, right? Because when what do we do with questions of uh, what do we do with questions of how do we treat other people in modern societies? How do we treat each other? Uh, these sort of basic questions, political questions, ethical questions, mor- moral questions, right? That that uh, what you said about domestication it reminds me of Foucault actually. Yes, yeah. you know these masters Definitely. are they're domesticating their subjects. Um, through surveillance technology, technologies of surveillance, through um, different exer- uh, different ways of exercising power. It's just interesting to me that kind of the solution seems to be, well, you assert your own moral truths and you impose them on others. But by definition, you, you can't um, you can't have the majority of people successfully accomplishing this because it would it would reduce to complete nihilism if 
everyone was, you know, full of life and, and spontaneity and exerting just truth, their own personal truths on the world every which way, it would just be complete chaos. You know, so isn't there, isn't there would, would, would you agree that there's a certain um, imperative within Nietzsche's prescription that only a small number of people get to be a part of this aristocratic class? Yeah, I think uh, it's sort of presupposed by the, you know, the concept sort of presupposed this a hierarchical uh, society, right? Because only that which is strong and can survive sort of tests of strength could then posit itself atop a hierarchy and and in a sense enslave those who could only <laughs> who enslave the populations who who didn't prove themselves worthy and 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 then juxt and then create a sort of framework of what's good and what's not good uh but it's you know this gets to the historical recounting that uh, the historical sort of philosophy that or theory that Nietzsche, Nietzsche puts forward, which is that those who are subjugated, those who are enslaved, in a sense, become resentful, right? They 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 sort of grow resentful. Yeah. They sort of they sort of hide away, and over long periods of time, build up all these resentments and and angers and. And become cunning. Start thinking about how to overturn, overturn things, and start, and they and they start coming up with these ideas, like universal love or uh, love your brother and neighbor, and you know Christian ideas or modern ideas of of universal sort of natural law and human rights and all these different, which you know for Nietzsche are nothing more than, you know, first of all they they can't exist because for him the world is too complex, too too difficult for any one subject to sort of um, posit and understand in all its complexity. And, and for him, there's no other way to, to sort of react to that than to say, well, of course, then these attempts to create a sort of universal notion of truth can't be anything else than pure attempts to power through other means that are not directly physical. So so there's there's that, right? There's this, there's There's that element as well. May, may, may I ask, though, so this might be a, a key distinction between Nietzsche and Foucault, because Nietzsche looks at this and he says, well, this modernizing trend is just a mass reduction to slavishness. Yeah. But it almost seems like Foucault would say, no, this modernizing trend is just another more advanced version of control, of power. So it's like we still have this aristocratic class that is defining and, and determining the knowledge and that knowledge is is being imposed on the the rest of us, and it still enables them to, um, you know, pursue their their own um, vital agendas, yeah. whatever that may be. Yeah, I think that you know, there's there there's some interesting parallels and, and tensions between the two thinkers. But in a sense, you could almost read. Uh, I want. I think you could almost read Nietzsche's critique of metaphysics and modernity his radical critique of sort of the, the Enlightenment, uh, being transferred by Foucault to a critique of the the human sciences, you know, psychology um, and so forth, and the social sciences and human sciences, and, and being more sort of hist uh, historically oriented in terms of telling the history of sort of 
power in the in in the sort of modern period. But uh, I guess what what they I guess you know they sort of share these these common frameworks, but one turns his looks more towards uh, in some ways one carries out his critique of enlightenment and modernity by looking at its at its more explicit sort of scientific discourses and trying to show the way that the way that these sort of in presenting themselves as objective are really just other forms of will to power um, and so forth. So they share, they share a lot in common. They just maybe uh, Foucault sort of shifts perspectives a little. Um, need, and Foucault doesn't, I think, have any... Foucault doesn't really have any um, maybe illusions or nostalgias for a sort of pre-modern past of hier- hierarchical... Uh, societies perhaps but he but I think he, there are tensions at some point in his writings where he's he, he's like Nietzsche he, he's not quite ready to sort of praise the irrational or the other as sort of just being good just being or just some kind of vital life as being good he's 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 sort of taking Nietzsche and making it even more ironclad in a sense because um, there is no there is no other there's just power uh, sort of suffusing absolutely everything, in a sense. We could maybe we could read Foucault as even being more pessimistic to a certain extent, um, even if he's not, even if he takes a different direction. You know, he's not. Um, I don't think he's he's celebrating about uh, the aristocrats' val- uh, will, uh, sort of master morality, but he doesn't. He doesn't seem to see. Uh, he doesn't seem to see anything else but power dynamics at play right you know you and i had a conversation about um who we thought would be kind of amusing topical public figures to look at and kind of assess their uh proximity to nietzschean uh, power Mm -hmm. and we thought about elon musk and uh donald trump yeah to to very to i think to very public figures uh in our sort of discourse right in our day-to-day discourse. Yeah, and I think in some ways they're similar, but but in a lot of ways they're very uh, uh, juxtaposed in, in their relationship to uh, Enlightenment values and um, how they uh, exercise their power, or from a Nietzschean standpoint, lack of power, or lack of vitality or nobility uh, in, in the public discourse. So... Um, you want we can go down that track yeah let's let's talk about these figures i think they're really um i think in some ways if we think about uh nietzsche as being a sort of a radical critic of modernity then then what do these two figures tell us about what the the, the current conditions of of you know supposed modernity that we're living through you know trump let's start with trump what do you you know what is your take on on trump as a as a Nietzschean figure. All right. Well, um, we're a fairly new podcast, so we have no idea what our audience is going to look like. So potentially <laughs> um, contentious territory here. Yes. But uh, probably uh, anyone who's listened to us so far is, isn't under any illusions about um, what we think about President Trump. But uh, there... Still, this isn't going to be a necessarily a political critique, but more kind of a, an analysis of 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 power. Yeah, and uh, there are some really interesting things we can look at uh, with Trump. Uh, which the first one, 
would be um, well here I'll, I'll just tell you kind of what I think uh, first yeah. so I, I came up with with three important things that speak to his uh, relationship to Nietzschean power the first one would be a complete disregard for truth and I don't even think Trump supporters would uh, disagree with that I think they, they're fine realizing that at least many of them who have spoken with another one would be um, appeals to a uh, to uh, fears of an increasingly threatened poor white community which helped get him elected because that's yeah, yeah. where a lot of his constituents come from and the the, the third one uh we discussed is um his his language approach so speaking in a simple kind of matter-of-fact way and he doesn't lecture at his audience so those are the three things i thought we could talk about and if you have any other um any other addendums we can discuss that too sure well let's let's start with maybe um his rhetoric let's maybe work yeah. a little backwards and let's start with his his rhetoric rhetoric which i think is really interesting and it brings us back to a you know discussion that that was really important for plato right uh this question between um sort of doxa versus reason opinions versus reason and and plato maybe the first sort of authoritarian um through his mouthpiece of, of socrates in his dialogues sort of is constantly uh there's a, i think there's a skepticism about the capacity of people to there's a there's a skepticism about politics as it plays out in in sort of public life and the way that the skilled orator the 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 skilled sort of rhetorician can use words to in a sense uh to in a sense stimulate or even um take advantage of of sort of the prejudices of of the publics the people and to 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 sort of to to his his or her own ends right so there's there's this this question of reason and the sort of loud chaotic crowds that are unable to sort of uh, function by way of reason but can only do so by way of passion so let's let's talk about this because i think this is we see in our everyday if you turn on um you know msnbc or whatever trump is we're always there's a like a continuous going over what trump said yesterday and what he said today and what he tweeted and what he said at a rally and he's got this very specific way of as you as you point out of speaking to his uh followers right he's got a very in in you know he might not be the most eloquent person in the world but he's definitely got uh, a technique <laughs> a rhetorical technique down which seems to be very efficient with his crowd well sometimes being uh, eloquent or or um well versed in in fancy words if that's the technical term uh isn't the best political move because you know a lot of people don't want to be lectured at with big fancy words they just want to be told what is so um but first let's 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 go back to the the rhetoric so um i think the way he he disregards truth and that comes through in a lot of his tweets and his speeches um i think that's a powerful tool which uh may align him with the nietzschean stance so i, I wanted to do a little research here so we weren't just kind of throwing things out there but you know i looked i found a washington post article which uh states trump averaged nearly i don't know how they collected this data but still interesting trump averaged nearly 5.9 false or misleading claims a day in his first year in office and he hit nearly 16.5 a day in his second year and so far in 2019 
He's averaging nearly 22 claims a day. So <laughs> he's getting, he's getting it, better at what he does. <laughs> yeah. He's being more yeah, efficient. Improvements, he's but. more efficient. <laughs> more lies per minute. But, you know, some examples are the Mexicans are going to pay for the wall or that the wall is already built or that he passed the greatest tax cut in history or that when the wind stops blowing, that's the end of your electric. He said that recently. Um, yeah. uh, I'm the least recent per- uh, the, the least racist person you've ever interviewed. Or uh, the response to Puerto Rico's hurricane fallout was fantastic. You know, just just like some yeah, obviously like some bullshit things that he just throws out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but um, you know his voters don't his voters didn't care because they voted for him and arguably they respected him for it and now we're all desensitized to it. So there's like he's he's kind of like changed the way that we as a society navigate truth or at least navigate truth when it comes to him. So and that has worked in his favor, I think. And even like his right hand man, Rudy Giuliani, when he was pressed about Trump's um, countless lies, gave this postmodern explanation that, you know, we're in a different age and truth. uh, Truth doesn't mean what it used to mean. Yeah, I don't I don't have the exact quotation, but um, it's crazy seeing that from from the right, which has become more of at least this group that's emerged as more of a right-wing nationalist kind of um kind of group but that's that's the the um the way they're pushing this and i think it's been effective from from a a standpoint of galvanizing voters and and influencing people yeah well you know i think and part of this part of what's really interesting goes back to i think this what you're saying right now links to this question of rhetoric because uh what you were talking about how he how trump doesn't lecture at his audience but sort of has this, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know if it's a, a sort of, there's a, there's a connect, there's a connection between his audience and when he's up there speaking to them, there's a sort of performative element. Uh, we talked, we talked in a previous conversation about how there's, if you look at a Trump speech, it's hard to sit down and go through a Trump speech, but when you get whatever you do watch on TV or a Trump speech seems to be made up of, of sort of incoherent or maybe somewhat coherent rambling and then these motifs where he goes think where he says like uh with reference to hillary clinton lock her up lock her up or with reference to um to the the wall build that wall build that wall or whatever other motif so he's got these motifs uh and these there's, there's these performative elements and in a sense that that makes him nietzschean i think in in the sense that he posits his own truths through a very much a direct relation to the that's based on passion, that's based on manipulation of emotions, uh, and is not based on this. I think liberal. Uh, this is this is why I think uh, the Democrats have a really hard time figuring out. They are talking from the perspective of a sort of liberal uh, division between the politician and the people, where the politician tells the people, "This is the way things are. Let me lecture you about what's true or not." Um, and I'm going to talk to you in this sort of very standardized politic- political language, uh, which already has determined uh, a, pro- a priori what is true and what is not. Um, and you will have to conform to it and, and, um, and such. And I'm going to appeal to your better nature. Uh, but I am sort of the one in charge. I understand what's going on. I've, I have access to the reports, uh, to the technocrats and such. So you see how there's there's... 
that he 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 totally breaks through the traditional polit- politi- political rhetoric in our as it's developed in our country undermines it by sort of getting outside of its sphere of what's true how do you speak to people and then is, is able to sort of posit his own truth or even posit his own sphere where truth doesn't even matter that much anymore it's not even that important of a category because he sort of embodies outsiderness he embodies pure um connection with these peoples and they're apparently maybe with their perceived interests as such uh so there's there's definitely something interesting in the way um th- but then that brings up the bigger question which is what do we make of this um right-wing postmodern turn yeah well um one thing i wanted to say you know i worked on the elizabeth warren senatorial campaign in uh, 2012 a major criticism yeah, a major criticism we came up against was that Warren has this tendency to lecture at her constituents. Mm, yeah. And uh, I've, she, she, she's given some really good speeches lately. She's running for president. But um, I think she's going to run up against a similar issue. Um, and, you know, she, she is a professor. Trump is not a professor. He doesn't come. He doesn't have this tendency to lecture at his audiences. So I, I think this made Warren less likable and makes Trump more likable to the masses, whereas you're going to have a, a, a more minority appeal if you're speaking in a smarter way, I think, um, to some of within within certain bounds, you know, he he's he's really skilled at simplifying and he never over explains. He repeats himself several times. You know, it's going to be great. It's going to be tremendous. Uh, I think <laughs> yeah. you'll find that it's really, really great. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there's a study. There's a study somewhere that. Um, if you're, uh, if I remember correctly, that repeating something between three to five times significantly increases the probability of retention. So this is just another effective instrument of power in Trump's back pocket, which he may or may not be doing intentionally, yeah. but um, still maybe Nietzschean, uh, nevertheless. Um, this um, this kind of growing populist trend that you mentioned, I think uh, he he plays into that on the uh, immigration front. Quite a bit, which is another interesting um, uh, exercise of power that um, that that fits neatly in, in certain aspects of Beyond Good and Evil as well. As well, where Nietzsche also has a little bit of an affinity for nativism, but also hates it in its extremes, and that kind of lent himself to Nazi movements and things like that. When his uh, sister, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe his sister kind of rewrote a lot of um, his, uh, what he said and crafted it for, for, uh, to fit more neatly in a, in a Nazi, yeah. in a, in a Nazi worldview. Yeah. But, but you, you do see, a um, Trump using a, a similar rhetoric to, to uh, galvanize. Anyway, l- l- let's look at certain, you know, he appeals to this increasingly threatened poor white community. Um, and that I think has enabled him to grow and sustain his followership. And I, I think he's targeting immigrants to galvanize his voters. So I, I want first I, I thought maybe we could look at some statistics about immigration. And I just wanted to pew quickly, you know, um, uh, between 1990 and 2007, unauthorized immigration steadily increased, but then it declined by 13% over the next decade. And similarly, the quantity of unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. workforce has declined since 2007. In 2016, most immigrants lived in just 20 major metropolitan areas with the largest population in New York, Los Angeles, and Miami. And these top 20 uh, 
Metro areas were home to 28.3 million immigrants, or 65% of the nation's total. So most of the nation's unauthorized immigrant populations uh, lived in these top metro areas. So I think that's important to note. Since 2007, the total U.S. labor force has grown, which includes the quantity of authorized immigrant workers. However, the quantity of unauthorized workers has declined. And, you know, I also found that a majority of Americans, 62%, say immigrants strengthen the country because of their hard work and talents. Just 28% say immigrants are a burden on the country because they take jobs, housing, and health care. And it's worth noting that a quarter century ago, this was flipped. So attitudes towards immigrants have actually greatly improved, counter to popular belief. Mm. But uh, he, here's what I found about Trump voters and, and the Trumpian rhetoric on immigration. Key Trump voters reside in rural Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, and Iowa. The majority of immigrants are not flocking to these rural areas. Yet the communities that are native to these rural areas seem to be more xenophobic, and they voted Trump. I'm sort of on the fence. I'm, I'm kind of part of the Yang gang, Andrew Yang. I, I think he's a really interesting candidate, and he makes some really great points on this. Um, he, In his book, he argues that in 2016, we automated away, I'm quoting him, 4 million manufacturing jobs within Trump-supporting states. So while the nativists may blame immigrants for reduced economic opportunity, technology and consolidation on the business end likely played a much more important role. So anyway, Trump has successfully galvanized his voters by appealing to their misdirected fear. So I thought that that was another uh, kind of interesting Nietzschean, uh, potentially Nietzschean exercise of power that was worth uh, discussing. Well, this this points to me, I think, something that, that's really important to in this context of Trump, I think, to, to discuss, which is what you just brought up, this whole idea of what what is what is galvanizing the passion of these um, Trump voters in these specific regions in particular. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, sort of rapid shifts uh, in these regions as they have deindustrialized, as jobs have picked up and left, as factories have shut down. And there's a sense, but I think, uh, you know, I think it's a, it, I read certain things about it. Sometimes I think it's important to keep in mind that a lot of Trump voters are actually, there, there, there is this sort of, I think, Trump voter from these regions that is sort of has maybe to a certain extent maybe suffered from uh, the move, the automation of jobs, the move away of jobs. Uh, which I think we'd have to then ask in the larger systemic question of why did those jobs pick up and leave, and why is it that uh, that why is it that the sort of establishment political um, the, the the political establishment has been enabled to sort of address that those larger systemic issues? How is it that the inability to address those larger systemic issues creates an opportunity for someone like Trump to come in and then sort of cr- and sort of relate directly to those passions of, of anger, fear, resentment from those voters through this sort of direct, totally anti-establishment rhetoric. I think that's it. Those questions are important to have, uh, the systemic dimension and how it opens up for this, this sort of opportunity for to Trump to come in. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I imagine that when the economic opportunity begins to shrink in these kind of closely knit, um, more um, cellular communities where they don't have much except for like each other and their values. They kind of retreat into you know, the comfort of their identities and they act out in hate and violence sometimes in, in, in the worst cases. Yeah. 
But, you know, I think that's where we have to differentiate between sort of Trump voters, too. Right. There's there are some who there are some who vote for who voted for Trump because he what if he might have made these appeals to nativism and racism um, and they sort of, in a sense, that connects to their economic anxiety. There are some who might not necessarily be much moved by those sort of appeals to racism, but are more just anti-establishment and, and in a sense, see Trump's direct rhetoric and anti-establishment rhetoric, again, positing its own truth, uh, having its own sort of non-standardized political language as sort of uh, undermining, uh, as a revenge against this, this sort of political establishment that refuses to sort of talk about uh, these systemic issues and why that happened and and continue to maybe ignore the underlying causes. And then and then there's another I think Trump voter which is which is um which is perhaps a more well to do Trump voter who maybe has a different ideological perspective um and maybe sees and this one is the most the most uh, maybe in some senses the one that uh that people forget about which is like a pretty affluent white a suburban voter, right. I think. But we could we could talk about what it is that d- would motivate that sort of affluent suburban voter to vote for Trump. I think that's another question for another show. But what you br- you know you bring out is really in- important. I think understanding how, in a sense, Trump uh, is able to to ca- uh, to feed to tap into these different strands. Um, usually, I think of these sort of voters type of voters. If uh, I, in some ways, being completely, making it almost impossible for the traditional political class, which has already decided how do you talk, how do you speak, what is true, what is not, what is considered a okay thing to say, what is considered a taboo thing to say, and they're completely ruptured with that. And in a sense, that's able to attract all these people who are tired with with listening to a set of politicians who seem to always go around in circles around the, the real issues, whether they be economic or whatever. And so I think that's really important. And the way, but that connects then to this, I think something you're bringing up, which is the way uh, there's a scapegoat there too. Um, Trump doesn't, doesn't also doesn't get it at maybe what some of the underlying causes of what's going on are, whether that's automation or systemic changes in, in the way capitalism works, but there's a scapegoat. There's an easy answer. There's, you know, the immigrant, right? The other. Yeah. Um, there's something very Nietzschean there as well, perhaps to a certain extent. Uh, maybe, maybe we're being unfair with Nietzsche though. But his form of his rhetoric, his form of relating to truth, is definitely sort of positing and creating his own truth. Uh, and very I, much. I, I think. I think. I think that's key, though. You know, with with any uh, truth model that you're trying to normalize as a Nietzschean master, it's important that you have kind of certain ideological components that are diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational. So uh, that, um, you know, specifically that there is an enemy that you can easily name so you can differentiate yourself from that enemy and have a strong personal identity at that point and a strong bond. Uh, at, Trump's been so good at doing that, I think. I, I mean, with, with things that are happening today, maybe his influence is starting to wane. But... Uh, Specifically, when he was coming to power uh, in the during the uh, last election, no, I think that I think that's really key. So, in a sense, you know, there's I think we see a tension arising again here, and as points to Nietzsche, which is how is it that on the one hand, this critique of 
you know, these standardized conceptions of truth and such. Um, nonetheless, when they're so radical as Nietzsche's, are hard for there's hard. It's hard to account for what then sort of an uh, an ethical, maybe political perspective that that one can defend. And uh, you know, that's what's really problematic about Nietzsche. He's 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 in in a sense he's very easy to be picked up by um, a sort of f- framework of thinking that uh, I mean that it's hard to call it by any other name maybe that that it's potentially proto-fascist in the way that it's very much linked to installing a sort of hierarchical society sort of picking uh, I don't know that I think there's a debate around that when we think about Nietzsche's critique of modernity but Trump we can see as is a maybe an aberration not even an aberration but maybe in some ways a living critique of modernity you know what something has gone wrong um, this embodiment of the Nietzschean, maybe a like a cartoonish version of the Nietzschean Superman, <laughs> is is yeah. in a sense wreaking havoc. But but what is it about the the what is it about the the modern systemic framework uh, of truth and evil that is unable to account for that is being undermined by the sort of Trumpian the Trumpian. Uh, termite that's you know eating at its foundations i think there's there's much there's much to continue yeah yeah i think so um i think we could t- talk about trump all day yeah. but uh poor elon musk is waiting for his analysis yeah <laughs> maybe uh honestly i don't have as much to say about him because i think he's a little bit more straightforward i think we're sort of in agreement i we, we agree right that um there are many nietzschean qualities to trump yeah so uh, Musk, maybe not so much. Um, so there, there are a few key points here. One, you know, he cares about truth and progress. The second point, uh, he's highly ideological and he's enamored with the pursuit of a future human space age. So I, I think like both these are kind of comments on his relationship to the Enlightenment that does not map on to a Trumpian stance. No, not at all. Um, also, like he's a product of... Um, there's certain circumstances surrounding what he's doing that make him more appealing. And that also plays into kind of uh, this fourth industrial revolution that we're entering with technology and information. And um, uh, that's important too. But uh, maybe let's let's go through these a little, a little bit more um, in depth. Um, on the first, truth and progress, you know, I'd say he, he's a strong believer in the Enlightenment based on interviews he's given and... Um, the, the kinds of companies he started with electric vehicles and um, privatized space travel and, and building uh, underground tunnels with automated um, or automating um, travel uh, so uh, to, to reduce traffic. So things like these that are very kind of uh, interesting futuristic uh, value propositions that he's demonstrating are real. Um, and it's all based in this kind of uh, appreciation or romantic stance towards science very much an enlightenment stance yeah and you know he's 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 nearly bankrupted himself a few times getting these outlandish innovations off the ground so i think right there that differentiates him uh strongly from from trump and and it signals to us that he's less of a nietzschean yeah yeah i think you know what you said about i think what you're talking some of the things you say are really key, right? So, for example, this question of uh, a sort of blind 
reliance or maybe blind faith, or at least a strong faith in science and progress, in the link between science, technology, and progress, is very much, um, an en- and you could call that perhaps an enlightenment a perspective. Uh, we could go back to thinkers like Condorcet, who sort of posited back in the back of the during the Enlightenment, this you know French thinker who who really posited a connection between progress, science, and technology in a very direct line of thinking. Uh, but but uh, and in that way, he's very much, I guess, the opposite of Trump, who is you know who for whom science is nothing more than, in a sense, a uh, an obstacle to to a certain mindset that's all about maybe maximizing sort of capitalist profit or something along those lines. If we could talk about what is what does Trump at the end of the day value? It seems to be a hard. Well, I'd say he's not very creative or very uh, innovative when it comes to creating value. Certainly not shared value in a, in a porter sense. No, but he definitely has this sense in which business for him is is this sort of important, all important maybe um, realm, right? And everything sort of needs to be thought about in terms of cost and uh, and cost and profit and such. In a sense, he's very much a, a pro a, cap, a, a pro capitalist of a certain of a certain strand, right? But yeah. whereas maybe he shares that to a certain extent with Musk, but Musk, but unlike Musk, for you know, Musk actually perhaps I think thinks about uh, problems that we have coming in the horizon, uh, climate change and other problems, and he's thinking about how do we think how do we find technological solutions, whereas Trump is, you know. Ask, trying to go back to the sort of uh, nostalgic world of heavy industry and carbon and coal and so forth. So there's, there's he doesn't really yeah. care about the science and it doesn't matter because right now these are the ways um, to sort of do things and make money maybe. But, you know, Musk, so Musk, Musk has that connection to the, enli- the Enlightenment in a sense. But uh, there's also, you know, I'm going to say, this is probably the fifth time I've said this, but there's a tension there for me too, right? Uh, because he he reflects this anti-Nietzschean faith in truth and science in progress, and at the same time he sort of also is the the epitome of that um, subject that has often been the, the center of the critique of the of modernity, which is a sort of enlarged subject that uh, because it can reason about the world. And it can sort of act instrumentally on the world through science and technology and mathematics can therefore, you know, becomes a little miny, a little mini tiny, uh, miny, a little mini God that can, that thinks of itself as sort of capable of, of, uh, of sort of solving all the world's problems. But then, you know, there are so many, there are so many sort of stories or sort of historical recountings of the way that this way of thinking has, you know, been disastrous, whether, whether it's, whether it's sort of some, state uh gigantic straight project of modernization that goes awry and and ends in in famine and destruction of of local communities or whether it's uh or whether it's some other sort of mad scientific tale allegory about the atom bomb or whatever so there's there there's that uh, too and but but that brings us to Nietzsche again in the way that he sort of posited this notion of the Superman, uh, which in a sense is a weird inversion of this figure of the enlarged subject 
which has been such a motif in critiques of, the, of modernity. So Musk is, a, in a, but Musk in a sense represents that, right? I'm going to solve these problems. I'm going to solve these big problems, which might at the end, of, at the end of the day, you know, not through the political dimension, but through technology. Yeah. Well, well there's, there's the other perspective that he will create the AI equivalent of an Ubermensch. <laughs> right. And then, right. and then democracy, the, the enlightenment ends, <laughs> you know, um, so that, that's another interesting conversation to be had about, uh, you know, how technology, when it, when it begins to, uh, constitute everything, it begins to contradict our, um, humanistic, uh, values. Well, and then one of the critiques of the Enlightenment, and this isn't Nietzsche's critique, but another critique was that the Enlightenment um, went wrong in a sense when it reduced sort of reason to pure instrumental thinking and that there was much more, there were all these other realms of, of, re, of sort of, of rationality, perhaps you could say, or relationality, which have to do with, norm, with norms, with ethics, with aesthetics that were in a sense sort of like set to the side and science was sort of and technology were in a sense posited as as the be all and end all and there was an inversion maybe yeah. in means and ends um you know why do you know what is the uh to what ends are you are you creating something like an atom atomic bomb or something like that i guess would be the more the the most the biggest example of this this sort of inversion means and ends the capacity to control uh, in a sense, nature and the and the and the incapacity to be able to control the what you what you create, but but uh, I I you know I I almost think it's a little besides the point because I don't think Trump or well I don't think a Musk uh, is really thinking this way. You know he he is so ideological about this. He he becomes emotional about technology. There's an interview where he's asked about Neil Armstrong's uh, disapproval of industry being involved in space affairs, and he starts crying. You know, he, this, I don't think he's, um, really, I, I think he believes that technology will simply make our lives better. And that is what he's focusing on that aside, you know, whether or not technology will actually do that for us in the end, that's another question. But I think, uh, I think he is more of, of, of an enlightenment figure here, which makes him, makes him more of a slave from a Nietzschean stance. What do you what, what do you think? Do you think I'm off base there? Well, maybe. I mean, I think uh, in the sense that he has this, maybe Nietzsche would be useful in the sense of critiquing uh, Musk in in his maybe scientism in the way that he maybe thinks that uh, we are somehow capable of through purely technical uh, means to solve some looming problems, uh, whereas. And he might he might see that as this sort of slavery to these, this idea of, of universalizing maybe uh, scientific uh, concepts and laws, which, which are perpetually in a state of being re rethought and remade, and being have and having to be reconfigured as new information arises or as new, um, forms of measurement arise. So you know Newton's laws are great and all. But uh, they're not universal in a sense, in, in, in any sort of, you know, they might work. But uh, we know for a fact, <laughs> since Einstein at least, that they aren't some sort of uh, universal laws across the universe. Uh, 
um, they're mathematical symbols that, in a sense, help us uh, real deal with reality. But they don't. Ex- but they don't. They're not uh, a reflection of reality as the way it really is, right? So Trump, you know, we have to ask: Is, I, is Musk? I think, I think the, anal- the the analytic philosophers would, would take issue with that. But I, I'm more in line with you. I think yeah. they're more descriptive symbols we use to understand the world, which which may or may not be ordered. Yeah. So is Musk? You know, is Musk in a sense a slave to to sort of thinking that our equations about the world sort of reflect a reality about the you know the world and the universe um and therefore re- not realizing maybe that there's that science is one of the pieces that is very important uh for solving some upcoming problems in a sense that that would be a not really a niche critique but maybe a critique that uses nietzsche to a certain extent to to sort of question and take a and take a more skeptical perspective via the claims of the universal claims of maybe uh, modern science and that being said that being said musk is also uh, uh, you know in this emotion this emo uh what you were talking about how he gets emotional about technology uh in a sense that's also i wonder if nietzsche would also question whether that's not some sort of some sort of slavish sort of slavish mentality um yeah i i think he would unless it's just a ruse to um you know never put it past uh musk maybe uh maybe it's all just a ploy to get us to buy in hmm. which 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 um would make him uh maybe a little bit more of a strategic intentional uh user of of power you meant and you mentioned that he doesn't have to, he's not he doesn't have to speak much but in a way he's able there's a certain following that he has just because of his sort of strong commitment to uh to technology as yeah. a way of sort of solving big problems yeah i mean it might this might sound pretentious saying this but you know there are a lot of academics and people in the communication space who are going to tell you that musk isn't an amazing presenter or public speaker but he doesn't you know he doesn't have to try too hard to capture your attention you know, we said he's talking about colonizing Mars. He's talking about augmenting brains with hardware to increase processing power. Uh, it's so cool, the stuff he's talking about. It's the content of his speech and what he's actually doing. They're so imaginative and amazing that he doesn't have he doesn't have to strongly project himself and own the stage to get many people, investors, governments, and other Nietzschean slaves to buy in. So, <laughs> but the, so I, yeah, yeah. The, and this was where the thinking of him through a Nietzschean lens also brings up another tension, which is you were talking about how in a sense he he talks about these specific, you know, advancements, AI and, you know, brain enhancements or whatever. But he never you never hear him reflecting on the ethical elements of these, what they mean for democracy, these other supposedly pillars of enlightenment. And then in a sense then he uh you know, I think it's hard to categorize whether he is Nietzschean or whether he's a reflection of what Nietzsche was attacking or whether he's just, you know, we'd have to have other paradigms for critiquing the Enlightenment for, to critique Musk. You know, what at what extent, you, uh, all these things sound great, but what happens to these other pillars of the Enlightenment? Um, yeah, the notion that, of democracy. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, the notion of, uh, the you know, the ideas of democracy and ethics and as they relate to to life and and the future and solving our problems i'm sure there's an interview somewhere where he uh spoke to to something like that 
But, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where he sees the world going in general. Yeah. You know, uh, it seems obvious to me that when we start automating intellectual tasks, there's going to be a, a crisis of, of capitalism and democracy. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how our, our um, Silicon Valley gods, you know, assist or, or what, what they do in that situation for us. And, you know, I think ending with the idea of Silicon Valley gods is a very powerful image in the context of Nietzsche, right? And brings up all these questions we've been talking about, about, in a sense, a critique of modernity, because, uh, in a, we, you know, me and you have talked about before about the ties between Silicon Valley, a sort of new anti or dark enlightenment, uh, reactionary sort of philosophy and uh, and sort of the ties between that and maybe some already post-human perspectives even postmodern perspectives on on uh, the future of humanity about who gets to live and who doesn't who deserves to live and who doesn't uh, hierarchical perspectives on who's going to escape to Mars and who's going to stay here and die and uh you know, I think that that's a powerful image on which to end. Who, uh, who are these? Who is this new aristocracy? What it, What do they think about um, questions of human dignity? Or are they the new? You know, are they going to posit their own sort of good and not good based on their powers on their new power? Yeah. Well, maybe uh, maybe we should have, should have looked at Mark Zuckerberg because he, <laughs> a bit of that. <laughs> he strikes he strikes me as the le- the least godly of all those. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe another interesting thinker to look at might be someone like Peter Thiel, right? Someone who yeah. a self styled or maybe a, a sort of philosopher in his own mode, power and a powerful figure who is uh, very much thinking about these questions. And very problematic, I think, in some of his ideas. Yeah, I, I know he had a conversation with uh, Unger that I haven't watched that yet. Yeah. So I need to get to that. Yeah, I'm but, sure and, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's a weird mix of thinkers. For anybody who knows yeah. who Roberto uh, Unger is, the uh, the professor of law at uh, at Harvard, and and but uh, maybe there maybe there's you know. Maybe there's things that him and Thiel share that don't, aren't apparent in the surface. To be, to be continued. Yeah, and in the interest of time, we're going we're going a little bit long here. There, there. Um, I think there there are a few practical elements that I think we can distill from yeah. Nietzsche for thinking and acting in strategic terms. And I have a list of five, and maybe we can just bang through them. Yeah, and, tell me what you. Were, quick, yeah, quick I think it's always good to ground this conversation in some practical yeah, elements yeah. like what can we do with Nietzsche today <laughs> yeah and some of these are pretty obvious yeah. some of the, it's it's more kind of amusing I think but you know the first one I came up with uh, people uh, people are mostly self-interested so no motivation is pure determine what your followers or prospective followers really want uh, understanding the motivations and desires of your audience can make them vulnerable to your influence so uh, <laughs> this kind of goes back to Nietzsche's view of other people that they're basically narcissistic and easily manipulated so um, there are probably uh, ethical things to consider there as a leader, but still nah, interesting just, from a um, just you should just manipulate the emotions and <laughs> and 
perceptions of your of your uh, listeners and uh, fellow co- well, it, fellow cooperator cooperators at work. There, there's there's another side to this that you know when you're trying to create a more a stronger relationship, it's uh, good to kind of have a sense of um, you know get to get to a shared interest uh, mode of, of conversation. So you're probably gonna gonna create more mutual value if uh, if you kind of have better understanding about each other's motivations and where you're coming from, more understanding. So that's another way of looking at this. It's not just uh, negatively influencing people, manipulating people, but um, kind of uh, using uh, influence in a more positive way. Okay. Now I don't know Nietzsche probably wouldn't put it in those terms, but that's just another way of looking <laughs> at it, right? From, from a communication standpoint. Yeah. Uh, okay, another one. Uh, this one's maybe far-fetched. Um, you might not want the whole world to have access to your message. So Nietzsche didn't want stupid people to read him. Beyond good and evil, he screened his readers by writing in aphorisms. So in the same way, we can use screening techniques to identify and target our audience and maximize influence. Now, I, I, I read another article you know, that, that said he wrote... That points aph- to rhetoric and styles of rhetoric, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read another article that claimed that Nietzsche wrote in aphorisms because he was sick. So he couldn't spend too much time sitting and writing, but I don't. That, that's hard for me to believe. Well, I mean, I'd be curious to see where that the argument was made and how it's backed up. But it it seems to me that Nietzsche was very intentional in the way he wrote. I agree. I think uh, he was more intentional here. Uh, okay, a third one. Uh, building off the last point, so don't alienate your audience. It wasn't until Nietzsche died that the philosophic community of Europe started to contend with his work. So Nietzsche resented other philosophers, and it shows in the way he writes about them, particularly in Chapter 6, Always Scholars. So uh, it's important to know who your audience is and um, frame your message in a way that's going to resonate with their experience. A fourth one. So some people uh, may accept arbitrary rules as common sense without having really considered the arbitrariness of those rules. So this kind of self-deceit can render someone uh, vulnerable to confabulation like a simple psychological trickery to influence one's performance and goals, kind of like what we looked at with Trump. Yeah. So something of a tangent, uh, this was several months ago, but there was an interesting, uh, in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, there was a study that found under some circumstances, false beliefs can be planted, causing a lasting change in political attitudes. So uh, if anyone is interested in that, you can look that up. Okay, uh, last one, mirroring. Actually, this is something that I use in my personal life. Uh, mirroring, it's an effective strategy of winning the trust of your followers. So Nietzsche recognizes the emergence of violent nativism in Europe, a uh, response to increases in the flow of diverse human capital. So he expresses concerns about even contempt for some multicultural individuals supposedly threatening to destabilize the German identity. So this yeah. includes Jews. So part of the Beyond Good and Evil read horribly xenophobic and racist. Um, yeah, in other parts, he's kind of uh, speaking against these things. So, I mean, definitely parts of Nietzsche lends itself to um, Nazism, but um, not completely until uh, other people got their hands on his work. Yeah. Um, that, that's my reading of it. I know some people would probably disagree with that. Uh, but in, in counseling and negotiation literature, mirroring is recognized in a, as an effective strategy of seeming like the other party to create a bond. So this is kind of a soft power tactic encouraging the other party to like vomit information at you without realizing it. And in Chris Voss's book, uh, Never Split the Difference, he has a whole chapter on this technique for winning negotiations. 
So maybe I'm being a bit too generous here, but at the very least, Nietzsche seems to acknowledge the use of establishing a sense of sameness, attempting to influence one's behavior. So that kind of plays into his nativist uh, ploy. So those are those are the five things I came up with. Yeah, I'm sure there are more. You know, I think part of it's interesting because what you're bringing up is very much in, um, I think, very much in the key or the mode of uh, intersubjectivity and interaction interaction through communication and uh, very much face-to-face oriented and i think what some of our far, some of our discussions and i think in, in future programs which might be about questions of media communications technologies might 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 force us to come back to these and wonder um if how these strategies might be play out in the context of uh, mediated communications on the one hand but also how uh if you know, do we really think, do we, can we really think that Nietzsche f- f- gives us a framework for thinking about intersubjectivity and interaction through, through, uh, through linguistic, through discussion, through, um, through interaction at that, at that face to face level? Or, you know, is there always, can Nietzsche only give a sort of strat- strategic communication, which is always in a sense aimed at deceiving? not at understanding uh well you know i think older horses there yeah i think an interesting <laughs> an interesting uh <laughs> set of questions that come as, up as as a someone whose job description includes strategic communication <laughs> i'll say that uh we try to do things in in a good you know there, there's 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 an attempt to influence but hopefully we can influence in a positive way yeah. that that increases value for everyone and, you know, that, that plays into the first thing we touched on, that some cases it will, um, there's a, there's an easy, obvious track towards creating shared value uh, through uh, different modes of influence. And sometimes it might not be possible within the framework, the, the procedural framework or the uh, institutions we currently have. There might need, there may need to be some wider systemic change or, uh, or you know, help from, from government party that, but um, yeah, that's a conversation for another time, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, let's let's say uh, thank you to Nietzsche for giving us, I think, a, th- a framework to discuss and to keep thinking about, even if it's as problematic as he is and uh, as angry as he is. <laughs> he he's <laughs> definitely not boring. No, great. Great, uh, great read, and I look forward to reading more of his works down the line. Wonderful, Jason. Well, then, uh, look forward to a f- to our future episodes. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.